Tonight, we join local and state municipalities and governments all across this nation in declaring racism a public health crisis. This past weekend, the American Medical Association declared racism a public health crisis. The resolution that you have before you is part of the framework for our strategy to build an inclusive and anti-racist place to live, work, and do business. Hello and welcome to episode six of the East Lansing Insider. It's Wednesday, November 25th. I'm Andrew Graham here joined today with Emily Joan Elliott and Alice Drager. Emily, how are you doing today? Good. I'm hanging in there. And Alice? All right. I want to get out and go running in this drippy wet weather. Oh, oh no. <laughs> um, just pass on that. Uh, getting into the headlines, a uh, couple of meetings to lead off this week. We had the school board and the police oversight study committee. That is not the full name, but that's what I'm going to call it on Monday night. And then last night was city council. So I'm going to kick it off to you first, Emily. Uh, you watched school board on Monday night. What, what did they get up to? What, what happened? What came out of that meeting? Sure. Well, it was maybe the quickest meeting we've had in months because there was no public comment was an option. No one chose to use it. But the major takeaways were, first and foremost, probably of interest to our readers, the date, excuse me, for back to school for all students has been pushed to January 19th. And that's not a guarantee. So what they have now is a continuity of learning plan that says schools could open if the public health data says it's possible, it's not going to be too dangerous. Initially, K through five was going back January 4th was the idea. And then six through 12 was going to go back January 19th. But Superintendent Dory Lyko felt it was insincere to give parents the hope of the January 4th date. Because as Eli has reported last week, the COVID-19 situation has become a lot more dire in our area. And the East Lansing Public Schools does have to consider things like hospital capacity when it makes the decision to reopen. And there was also concern voiced by some parents about a June or January 4th return date because people might gather for Christmas, New Year's, have traveled, contracted COVID, returned to school, and not yet be testing positive, although they have it. So they thought that was just not the best idea in terms of trying to contain the spread of the virus. Um, There was an amendment to the sex ed curriculum. It was the second time for the public hearing. There isn't really a change to the content. They are still going to continue teaching affirmative consent. They're just getting a new workbook that is easier to use. It gives scenarios for students to work their way through. And it's more inclusive. Um, It isn't just your typical male, female, straight couple. It includes couples of various types as well. And then the third takeaway is that they terminated their contract with Midwestern Wall uh, for finishing Pinecrest and White Hills. They were supposed to finish a lot sooner. November 18th was the final deadline to complete final tasks that Midwestern Wall knew about since July or early August. Midwest Wall hadn't done any of this. 
And Midwest Wall, the school board also had to terminate their contract for finishing up Don Lee and Glenn Karen for pretty much the same scenario. And it was confirmed at the school board meeting, luckily, that the Midwestern Wall won't be doing anything with Marvel, which is probably a good thing given the track record. Yeah, I want to jump back, obviously, to the COVID and the continuity of learning plan, because that's the 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 heavy headliner. What specifically, I know we've reported this before, but just to bring it back to the front, what are some of the metrics and the, the public health information besides hospitalizations and stuff like that, that the district will be looking at and considering when deciding when to potentially bring students back? The district is looking particularly at the percent positivity rate of test results. And the last time they discussed the metrics was not this board meeting, but the one before. And it was kind of in that orange proceed with caution. Our test positivity uh, rate was about 6.7% then, if I'm not mistaken. And I don't know where it stands more recently. And then the other thing is cases per 100,000. And that was in the red as in a do not open. And I forget the exact numbers. Was it in the 200s or 300s? But it was too high to really consider reopening. I believe the state law that was passed this summer also says beyond looking at like hospital capacity, they have to look at maybe the rates of cases and the number of deaths. But that is in my article from that school board meeting. I'm just not recalling off the top of my head. So anyone interested could go back to the article that was from November 9th. So if you go to eastlansinginfo.news, click on the schools tab at the top, look for that article by date. Yes. Yeah. And I wanted to, the, the sex ed curriculum thing I think is interesting just because the point you said about they're not really changing what they're teaching. They were already teaching affirmative consent, but I, I took a peek at the agenda item of it basically seems like there was issues with it, the, the, how they were teaching it or the workbook they were using just basically wasn't, they didn't feel it was like comprehensive enough, I guess would be the word I would use. Is that sort of the, the goal with the new one is that it's just, it'll all be covered in that. I think they just wanted an extra tool for students to understand because I think the takeaway from students and the teachers there was that students, certain situations, it's very obvious if if affirmative consent has been given and some are less clear. And I think as they were getting into the gray areas, the students were really having a hard time saying, yes, affirmative consent had been given. No, it hadn't. So this workbook is a series of examples, like scenarios okay. that then they could pick apart with the teacher and go into, well, this person said or did that, this person said or did that, this is how they responded. So I think it gives everyone something a bit more finite to work with. Right. So moving it on to the other meeting on Monday after, Monday evening uh, was police, the study committee on an independent police oversight commission. I'm going to that one's getting boarded there pretty good. Uh, I watched that meeting and wrote up a report that came out, was published this morning on East Lansing Info, uh, Wednesday morning. Basically, the the two big headlines I took away from that meeting were the group agreed to or adopted a, a draft outline of their final report that they'll be giving to city council um, with four sections. 
uh, the main ones being the first and the fourth, the first section, and just sort of outlines the purpose of the study committee, um, what they do, what they will have done. And then section four is ultimately going to be their recommendation or a draft resolution to form an oversight commission, potentially. they I don't think they have formalized that yet. Um, and besides that, they got a presentation um, by East Lansing Deputy Police Chief Steve Gonzalez about ELPD and use of force, which there was nothing, you know, juicy or sizzling out of that. But it was just an interesting look into how East Lansing Police Department has, there was some data in there about how they've used force and just generally learning more of the police perspective on it. Um, and I think the big takeaway East Lansing specific from that that I had was that East Lansing currently doesn't have an early enter, early intervention system or sort of a, a, a data management supervisory central system. So, I mean, I think Gonzalez described it as interim at one point. I'd call it ad hoc probably. So I think we they, should explain just what that is. That's for monitoring the work of yes. officers, not, not yes. looking for early intervention of noticing crime patterns. This is for watching what officers are doing and whether or not there's... Yes, so basically... They the current policy is obviously that it gets written into written reports from incidents that's legally required, and officers are also supposed to report it to their shift supervisor. That supervisor is supposed to by the end of the shift uh, bring that to the administration, and then administrative you know an administrative re- review process proceeds from there. And basically, there isn't that process isn't formalized. They don't have a way of sort of tracking all of it, aggregating data. And it's just, it's, it's ad hoc. It's not something formalized. And Gonzalez did express interest and they, they would like to have a better system, but they don't have one now. And I think that just in terms of like actually how the police is functioning right now was my biggest takeaway. Alice, you edited the story a little bit. What did you sort of take away from that meeting? I know you ended up watching it too. Yeah, I think it's significant. You know, so they've now, they're now basically two months in. And so they've got four months left. So they're a third of the way through the process. But I think they've made some real progress here in terms of sketching out what it is they're going to do in terms of this report to council. Of course, the key people have to remember is that, um, well, a couple things. One is that council gets to decide what really happens. So no matter what the group recommends, it ultimately will be council that decides. The second thing is that... Um, What's really important about this is a lot of people who are unhappy with the way policing works are unhappy with the culture of policing. It's really hard to ascertain how cultures work and to change cultures. And so a lot of what we're looking at is more policies and more um, procedures aimed at sort of getting at problematic stuff. But if at the end of the day, what we've got is a cultural issue where we know from the data, for example, that it appears that people of color are being stopped at a much higher rate than white people, for example, um, by East Lansing police officers. There's a question of how we deal with that. And that's, you know, that's part of a larger culture in America. And so those are going to be challenging issues. And this group is tackling those challenging issues, I must say. They're looking at what a lot of other cities are doing. They're looking even at places like New Orleans, where there have been consent decrees with the Justice Department to try to understand how do we begin to get to the point where you really have an approach that reflects the community's values in terms of the way that policing happens? Yeah. And I think it's still, I think to a lot of people, myself included at times, a very overwhelming thing just because of how massive of a thing, because it's so, 
it's more than just the use of force policy. It's more than just arrest data. And like you said, if it's something that's you can reform all the policies and procedures you want, but if there's a cultural problem, that's not going to help you that much. Um, and so I do think it's it's they're making good progress, but it's still I, I think people are still coming to appreciate there's a lot here. Um, and I think something that's it's very important work, too. It is. I and I think curious. this group is crazy hardworking. I mean, I, it, it's remarkable to see how hardworking this particular group is. Not that other people's on boards and commissions are not, but this group is really, really working hard. And that maybe that's partly because they've got a deadline. But also that I think it's really clear that um, Deputy Chief Steve Gonzalez, who's been with the department for, I think, 22 years, is pretty clearly really dedicated to this issue of trying to fix a bunch of problems with this process. And so um, all in all, I have to say, I think it's it's something that seems like we're going to see some significant changes not too far off in the future. Agreed. I think Gonzalez is he realizes that it's not sustainable to go on with a large portion of a community, basically not being on board with how things are going for whatever reasons and wants to. I think it's clear that he wants to get to a place where people are comfortable with the police doing their jobs in and around them every day, because that's really what we want. And it's just how, how does that, how do we get there? Um, and then council last night, Alice, you and I were watching, um, not a ton actually happened. There was a pretty, pretty notable consent agenda, but nothing crazy, just long, they had a, a financial report or sort of a financial report. Uh, I guess, can you explain further about what that was, Alice? Yeah, it's the audit of the annual financial report that's required by the government. Um, and so the audit, once again, came up clean. What the audit measures, though, is not the financial health of the city. The audit measures how well our finance department is doing in terms of keeping the books. And our finance department, again, got all A pluses. They are extraordinarily good at doing the work that they do. And the auditors recognize that every year and make clear that not every city has uh, folks of the quality that East Lansing does in the finance department. But there are a lot of uncertainties in the budget. And we're going to be bringing more on that next week. So I'm not going to get too far into it. But um, we'll just say that the pandemic has led to a lot of uncertainty in different areas of revenue in the city and costs are not really going down. So uh, it's it's going to be an interesting couple of years ahead of us. Right. The other thing that council did on Tuesday was approved a resolution that unanimous, unanimously voted through a resolution declaring racism a public health crisis in East Lansing, um, something that's particularly pertinent as we've seen the effects of COVID be particularly disproportionately affecting people of color. Emily, you wrote up a, a story basically saying that we we pretty much could assume council was going to pass this after mm-hmm. a discussion-only meeting. Um, you did not watch council last night, but I guess just from the discussion-only meeting and you've read the resolution, what's your sort of takeaway from what this actually means? So I think the resolution does an excellent job of laying out what is racism and its roots. And one thing that I did appreciate was the emphasis that racism leads to disparate outcomes with health, not race. Your race doesn't make you more likely to have underlying health conditions, but racism, the access you have to care, uh, the quality of care you receive, how people perceive you, the extra stressors you have in life all contribute to poor health outcomes for people of color and particularly African-Americans. That was a strong suit. 
but there was few concrete actionable items in the resolution. The most actionable is maintaining the diversity, equity, and inclusion administrator position, which currently is held by Elaine Hardy. So making sure that position doesn't go anywhere and doing yearly checks to see how the city is doing. But there aren't measures, say, to have a blood pressure machine put into City Hall so people could come and check their blood pressure or um, something that could be done for diabetes is, I'm just kind of thinking of ideas off the top of my head now, is I have a friend who had gestational diabetes. She still has a meter. How could she maybe then give that to somebody in need who needs it? So there's fewer of those concrete actions. And I know Alice has reached out to Elaine Hardy on behalf of Eli to find out what might be done to create some of those actionable items. Yeah. And one of the things that I pointed to after the three of us discussed this issue this morning earlier when I wrote to Elaine was asking questions, for example, about the um, workplace demographics, the workforce in the city of East Lansing. So Emily did a really excellent report for us a couple months ago, looking at who works for the city of East Lansing. And one of the things we found is that people of color disproportionately have lower paying jobs without benefits and white people in the city of East Lansing disproportionately at the city government have um, more full-time jobs with more benefits. The gender disparity was even greater. Um, the full-time jobs with benefits, two-thirds of them are held by men, only one-third of them by women. And so if the city wants to tackle things like disparities in health, a great place to look at is where disparities in income and disparities in health benefits occur. And at that point, um, it's hard not to feel like the city of East Lansing should look at its own house and consider the question of how money is distributed within the employment system of the city of East Lansing. And I didn't hear any of that in the resolution. So maybe they're going to be planning to look at that, but I'm not even sure they're aware of that data that we are quite aware of. One thing I did want to clarify that Emily mentioned earlier that um, race does not cause healthcare disparities. The resolution distinguishes without so much saying so between race and ethnicity. So there are people from particular genetic uh, lineages who have are more likely to have particular diseases that are genetic diseases or that have genetic predispositions. So for example, sickle cell anemia is a good example. Thalassemia would be another example. Diabetes runs more in certain genetic lineages, um, certain kinds of cancers. But those are not things that are simplistic races of the 19th century concept of race. Those are things that run within genetic lineages. And so the disparities that we see that get mapped onto what we socially called call race are things that also map to the histories of what happened to those populations. And so that's really where it's distinguishing sort of race and ethnicity within that document without being, I don't think it's quite as clear as it could be with regard to making clear that kind of distinction. But um, but yeah, this is going to be an interesting resolution. We're going to walk it forward. We're going to see where it goes because it's one of those places where yesterday, you know, watching them talk about a $100 million budget and then talk about this, but having no connection between talking about where that $100 million is spent and the public health issues was fascinating to me because frankly, where the city has enormous amounts of power is economically and how they spend that $100 million directly impacts who has things in their lives, who has a playground, who has access to fresh food, who has access to clinical care, all of those kinds of things that the city of East Lansing does in fact directly impact with its $100 million budget. So I'm curious to see whether or not there's more connections made between the economic power of the city and this question that council has decided to tackle 
of public health and racial disparities. I think it's also worth mentioning too, um, Ingham County passed a resolution in early June declaring racism as a public health crisis. And it was part of a Black Lives Matter um, meeting kind of for allies to know what they could be doing in the community. And I was there as a private citizen, not as a reporter for Eli. And Linda Vale at that meeting did declare racism as a public health crisis for Ingham County. But she was very clear that those were just words and it was up to the county commissioners to pass some sort of ordinance or resolution and then to actually follow through. Um, So at least that, you know, kind of our square here of East Lansing, Ingham and part of East Lansing is also in Clinton. It's been spelled out that you have to have actions backing up the words. Yeah, I think to me this is sort of they've stuck out they've you know staked out the rhetorical ground of this is a problem that needs addressing this is a, a reality and now it's the next steps are addressing that problem um in more concrete ways so i think it 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 can be a foundational piece to further actions but i don't know it's a good first step but it's a first step Right. And, and just, the idea. so just to be clear, as Emily is pointing to, the, East Lansing is not the innovator in this. This was happening all over the place. And then Ingham County decided to do it. And East Lansing is actually a little bit late to the game in some ways. So the Pew Trust um, has tracked that this this kind of racism is a public health crisis declaration has happened in um, various places in California and in Denver and in Indianapolis and in various places in Maryland, um, around Michigan, Ingham County passed one back in the summer. So East Lansing is actually a little bit um, on the tail end of this in some ways. So, but it did add its own bits to it. So walking it forward is, I think, going to be really interesting to see how it plays out in the city. Moving away from the three meetings to start this week, there's a couple stories that I want to touch on and uh, a a couple, a campaign or a series of stories we'll have coming. Uh, So first off, Emily, I wanted to ask you about your Green Fleets story that was published Monday morning. Well, it's maybe a more interesting segue than we initially realized or planned when publishing that on Monday. But that Green Fleets was a resolution passed by the city in 2014, and it laid out how extra money could be allocated for hybrid or electric vehicles and about trying to lessen the city's impact on the environment with its use of vehicles. So it's a resolution, and I, my understanding is one that hasn't been revisited too often for how it, the city has performed in living up to those measures. And I personally first became aware of it when we were asking the city why it had purchased hybrid um, SUVs for certain city employees. We were told, well, they purchase hybrids because of this resolution. I inquired further with Michael Fry and others in the city about how was it, what else were they doing? I was told route optimization through GPS and worker training. I had asked follow-up questions. And at that point, the city manager intervened and said, uh, the answers that I had received had to stand alone. I had to stand as an answer. So then I did a FOIA request to try to get the answers that I was looking for. And I found pretty much anything related to GPS from 2014 onward was primarily about monitoring workers. Were they moving 
to the places they need to be? Were they idling in a place and ostensibly not working? How long were they at specific locations? How long would that correlate to the job they should be performing there? Um, so it was a lot of discussion about price, um, negotiating the contract. So it was sometimes a bit of a boring read about their back and forth with Verizon. Um, but the worker training was minuscule at best and seems to date from 2015. And I was provided just two PowerPoint slides. Uh, if you go to eastlansinginfo.news and look up the story from Monday, November 23rd, you'll see the two slides. One is just a red squiggly line going here, there, and everywhere, like maybe a toddler would draw. And it said Taco it goes to Bell. Toledo. <laughs> Toledo and Potterville. And Taco I Bell. Is the name of the other. What was and it? Taco Bell, right? Or something? Taco Bell. Taco Bell, which if you kind of triangulate, looks like it might be in Flint. But um, <laughs> it was saying, don't drive this way. Just take a straight line to work. And obviously whoever made it was trying to be funny and maybe bring some levity to the worker training. I don't think they really thought anyone was taking this exact route. Uh, but when they moved on to explain why you should take a direct route instead of doing the Toledo, Taco Bell, Pottersville circle, it was because taxpayers might have questions about how their money is being spent. It could be embarrassing to the city. And then they threw a catabush driver un under the bus. <laughs> Bad pun there. Um, it was a picture of a guy texting while sitting at the driver's seat of the bus and saying, like, you don't want to be this guy and embarrass us. Um, there was another memorandum sent to workers, too, about how they should be managing their time. So th it didn't seem to really be much about going green. Um, it could be used to be going green, but it seemed more concerned about worker performance so here's one of these cases where this resolution exists and uh the actual panning out of it may not look like what the council intended right yes i don't necessarily think this is what council intended when they passed the resolution <laughs> right and this is in line with we were doing some further reporting i believe you are emily about green city that that people should be keeping an eye out for in the not too distant future Yes, that was, they gave me 122 documents on that, so I'm working my way through. Stay tuned for more from yeah. Emily. <laughs> Alice, I, I also wanted to, I wanted to ask you about uh, another story, one you've been pursuing pretty doggedly, is the Center City District Bond refinancing that may or may not be happening. Um, we basically don't know what's going on with them at this point is where we're at. Correct. correct. And on Tuesday, next Tuesday, December 1st, there's a $3.7 million payment due for the first time to the original bondholder, uh, three years worth of interest. And there's only about $1.3 million in the bank from the taxes that were withheld to pay this, leaving a $2.4 million shortfall, which according to the agreements, the developer is supposed to temporarily pay. So, I have no idea what's going on. They won't answer any questions. Uh, there's these $25 million in bonds. Will they be refinanced? If so, what will be the interest rate? Who will be paid out of them? Um, how are they handling all of that? Are they asking the developers, which is Harbor Bay Real Estate, who are big fans of Eli, as you all may know, and uh, Bowline Management, are they being asked to write a check for $2.4 million so that the payment to Scottsdale Capital 
which of course is um, biologically related to <laughs> Harbor Bay. Will they in fact have to write a check for that? We don't know. I've asked lots of questions. I've filed FOIAs. They won't answer the FOIAs. I've appealed. My appeal is not being answered. I can't get answers out of the city. We have no idea what's going on at this point. I presume at some point we're going to wake up and discover that the city has announced that something's happened with this somewhere between 25 and $33 million refinancing bond issue. But as of right now, we've tried, folks, and we've gotten nowhere. I'm just waiting for a Russian oligarch to buy the bonds or something to completely make this story as ridiculous as it could be. You know, I think the thing of most concern to people I hear from on this issue um, in terms of our readership is the question, why is council not pushing for the $6 million cap issue? And that I don't know. But we have some interesting quotes in the article from this week from um, council members, Lisa Babcock and Jesse Gregg. So Babcock said, Quote, it's frustrating trying to untangle deals that were made by others who have abandoned their roles. That's a slam at Meadows and Byer and left us with conflicting narratives. I also want answers to those questions that Eli has, and I don't believe it should be an excruciating process for the public or council members to receive them. So pretty sharp words there from Babcock. And then Greg said something um, kind of similar. Uh, One of the things she said is it's still not clear to me what our legal and ethical obligations are. Um, And she said, quote, I hope there is a future where I understand both the original bond and the refinance, but I still don't understand why the previous council pushed to include the parking structure in what could have been a reasonably straightforward development on private property, meaning not lot one. She goes on, since I don't understand why they thought this was in our best interest in the first place, I suspect that true clarity is never going to dawn. I would like to get to a point where I feel like we are honoring our half of the contract without feeling like we're being taken advantage of. I do think we're headed in that direction, unquote. So that was Jesse Gregg, Mayor Pro Tem. The twisted web the Center City District weaves. It's uh, we'll, We're going to keep paying attention to that one. I think you might be right, Alice, that we're just going to wake up one day and, oh, look, they refinanced it. It's We got a press there release. There is a sort of metaphorical um, thing happening here that cracks me up. Um and this was pointed out to me by uh, Nathan Andrus, who's our data analyst, who used to work for the parking system of the city. And that is that the plants they planted to uh, out in the front of the parking garage that is the center of the, all this bond stuff keeps dying. They keep planting these, arb- I think they're arborvitaes, and they just keep dying. So the city keeps spending money to replant them again. And I think it's because they're just not watering them. So it just it just feels like a hell of a metaphor as we keep replacing dead plants over and over again on this parking garage front. I didn't even know that. That's we have some oh. great pictures of them. We just haven't used the great pictures yet. This like large stand of dead trees and then another large stand of dead trees. <laughs> I remember uploading them to our media library and being like, ooh. <laughs> I thought I didn't uh, have a green thumb. I, I did the city. I least. would totally support plastic at this point because I think it would save us money. All right. Um, now I want to bring us a word from a new donor that uh, a quick little interview that Emily did with them. So take a listen. Hey, this is Emily Joan Elliott, the managing editor of Eli. I'm here today with Ramya Swayam Prakash, one of our new donors for Eli. I know Ramya for several years now. We were both graduate students in the Department of History at MSU, and we had been roommates at several points while we were grad students. 
So Ramya, thank you for joining us today. I was wondering if you could give our listeners a few brief words about who you are and how you wound up in East Lansing. Um, hi, thank you for asking me to be on this. Um, I am Ramya. I am originally from India. Um, I came to MSU to do my PhD in history, and that's how I ended up in the brilliant town of East Lansing. Great. So what made you decide to support Eli? Uh, primarily you. Um, I, I've been hearing about Eli for, you know, off and on for a few years now, but it was with Emily beginning to work with um, Eli that I began to think about you know, what does his website do? What what are these people doing? Um, and Emily sort of asked me to, um, I want to say, talk about how the pandemic was uh, affecting students way back when it went started. Um, and that sort of got me more interested in the kind of work that Eli does. And I've been sort of following off and on over the last few months, the work that Emily is doing, but the website in general. And yes, so- I forgot about that interview, but it was so early in the pandemic, we were able to go eat at Shop Allure before they closed down eateries for the first time. Yeah, yeah, way back when, when, you know, life had meaning. But anyway. So as someone who studies history, why do you find local journalism important? Um, I mean, we all know the story of, you know, local news organizations um, being bought up by big conglomerates and sort of this dearth of genuinely um, good, you know, even um, local local reportage, local journalism. Um, And I think what's, you know, if if anything, 2020 has shown um, how Americans, particularly, I think, more than other places, um, need good local journalism because not only are Americans you know, completely disenchanted and dis, um, dismayed, with what's, dismayed, disinterested with what's happening uh, across the world. Um, if Americans are ever to be, I think, um, and I say this as an, as an historian of America, I think more than anything else, um, if Americans are going to reclaim their citizenship uh, and a belief in democracy, um, then I think it's it's rooted in understanding local issues uh, far better. And that's the kind of, that's the important role Um, that Eli and other local news organizations fulfill. Yes, I should tell you guys that Ramya is writing a dissertation that looks at the U.S.-Canadian border with the where the Detroit River is, and she also has a degree in journalism. So one last question for you, Ramya, is you have been a loyal listener to East Lansing Insider, our podcast. So what would you tell our listeners is your favorite thing from the podcast? Um, there are two, three things, I think. Um, one, I think the general sort of vibe of the podcast is um, is one is very relatable. Um, I find the people, you know, all of you talking as the kind of conversation I would have had pre-pandemic with my friends, right? Sitting in a room talking about, you know, what's happening. Um, so one, it's relatable. Two, I think it's just the sort of minutia and the nitty gritty that you guys get into in a manner that's accessible. So... Um, the last episode I listened to, you know, about land easements in downtown East Lansing, um, even as somebody who's, tra- who's trained in urban planning, land easements have never been exciting. But listening to you guys talk about it made it interesting. And sort of, you know, I realized the the, the relevance of this particular set of easements. So, um, 
yeah, you know, the relatability, the accessibility, and just sort of the general vibe are the things that I really like about your podcast. Thank you. We'll have to use that as our tagline. We make boring interesting. <laughs> I mean, if you make land easements interesting, I think you've hit the mark when it comes to making things interesting. Great. Well, thank you for joining us today, Ramya. Have a happy Thanksgiving. Thank you. You too. Thanks. And so before we go, uh, two quick announcements, one each from Alice and Emily. Emily, do you want to go first? Sure. I wanted to let our readers know that at Eli, we have launched a series called Spend Locally to try to encourage everyone to patronize local businesses, do your Christmas shopping at local shops, even as we're not dining in restaurants, get takeout from your local restaurants. This is a desperate situation. Um, I know I was editing a piece Heather Brothers wrote for Arts Commission, which is forthcoming. And Jesse Gregg had told the Arts Commission there's a fear that 60% of local businesses may not survive the pandemic. So we are bringing forth a series that tells you what our local stores have to offer and how you can patronize them in a safe way um, in the upcoming month. Jesse Gregg at council last night actually said to people that it has reached the point where you should simply write checks to the businesses that you want to stay, have stay in business, that buying things alone is not going to make the difference because that's just about profit margin, that if you want businesses to stay open, talk to the owner and consider simply writing a gift check. Um, that's a pretty desperate situation when you're hearing that kind of thing. So we're trying to bring this stuff forward. Yeah. And then Alice in the same vein, Eli is getting into fundraising season and we're launching a, a new little thing. We are. We're in the midst of our 2021 sustainability campaign. We've been telling you about that on the podcast. But um, in order to energize people to help us fundraise, we came up with an idea, which is the Bucket Brigade. And you will know about this if you've ever been down to the festivals in East Lansing. There's a concept of people throwing money into the buckets. We thought we would do this virtually. And so we've created a series of virtual buckets we have a group of people who signed up to be bucket captains and they're going to have their buckets into which you can donate money and all of it will ultimately go into the Eli water tower. We have that set up virtually too. <laughs> and so we're going to be collecting water money in the buckets and pouring it into the water tower so that we can water this news desert for all of next year. Do you get all the metaphors there? Is this so, how Bitcoin works? <laughs> <laughs> we have to raise about $200,000 to pay for the entire Eli budget next year. Uh, we're doing great, but we need a lot more help before the end of the year to get there. I don't have the exact number off the top of my head right now, but we need everybody's help. Hey, everybody. Andrew here cutting in with a quick editorial note. Alice just mentioned in the discussion that she does not know the amount that Eli has fundraised so far. I got an email from Alice shortly after we recorded saying that she does, in fact, know and she was, quote, cringing that she d said she didn't know. Um, to date, Eli has raised just a little less than $24,000, so we're well on our way to our goal of 200000 but right now we are just a little bit short of $24,000 raised so far. Back to the show. There is a series of buckets that are set up now um, for me and em Emily and Andrew. And Andrew's, I think, is called the Andrew's Boosters. Emily's is the Emily's Accent uh, Fan Club. And mine is called Alice's Enablers. And we're going to have a contest to see which one of us can raise the most money. So all of the money you bring to that will be going into the great Eli Water Tower. So I have nothing wanna... on your enablers, Alice. 
I know you guys are going to know that I'm going to have a lot more buckets than you by the end of it. So uh, it's going to, if you just go to eastlansinginfo.news slash buckets, you will find the whole campaign, B-U-C-K-E-T-S. And if you've already given, don't worry, we're going to be contacting you or you can contact us and ask you, where would you like that money to go in terms of the different buckets? We have buckets for parks and rec. We have buckets for bicycle reporting. We have buckets for uh, investigative reporting in general for neighborhoods for whatever it is so if you want to start a bucket you just have to give a minimum of 150 dollars, and you can start your own bucket um, and if you want to be a bucket captain you can be a bucket captain and carry that virtual bucket around and fundraise for Eli so I think it's going to be a lot of fun and we're looking forward to this yeah like if a neighborhood wanted to make a, a neighborhood bucket and run up the score on your rival neighborhood Welcome that. <laughs> like Karen versus Oakwood. The yes, rivalry it's, it's, is back. I'm just, I'm just thinking about the firefighter Oak Street rivalry from King of the Hill, I think it is. Um, Perfect. But so, that's uh again, get it all at That's something to look forward to. News. Yeah. Yeah, eastlansinginfo.news slash buckets. Awesome. Uh, that's all we've got for you guys today. Thank you for listening once again. Um I feel like at this point I've I've been forgetting to do it, but if you feel so inclined please leave us a, a, a kind rating and a review um and thanks again for listening yes happy thanksgiving everyone indeed <laughs>